Where is the warrior who dared to call the gods out of the sky? Does he seek an easy death, a cheap seat in the halls of Valhalla? I do not speak to the old man cringing before me. I speak to the warrior who dared to test the mettle of the mighty Thor. Let him answer me. He is here, my lord. And he is ready. I am Miles Stokes. And I am Elizabeth Alley. And this is The Lightning and the Storm. Behold! Episode 2 of our 13-part love letter to Walter Simonson's epic 1980s run of The Mighty Thor. So, welcome back. Presumably you have listened to the first episode of The Lightning and the Storm, and you are ready to see what happens in a world without Beta Ray Bill, or at least a world where Beta Ray Bill is, like, over there, off to the side, and not showing up in the storyline. I think I'm gonna miss him. I'm gonna miss him, too. I, but really, I mean, let's be real, I miss Beta Ray Bill every time he's not around, and I don't just mean in fiction, <laughs> I mean in real life, too. It's a, it's a sad life I lead. But there are a lot of awesome characters in this arc that we're going through, so I'm very excited. Yes. So, since this is one single run, and we're just going from plot point to plot point, from one episode to the other, I don't think we really need to recap too much. Suffice to say that last time, Thor and the new alien Thor-ish guy, Beta Ray Bill, did some awesome stuff, and uh, Thor no longer has his previous mortal alter ego of Donald Blake. Now he's just Thor all the time, big and brawny and made of shoulders. And as an aside, uh, tonight, while Miles and I are recording this episode, there are actually storm warnings about a gigantic lightning storm, including uh, cloud-to-ground bolts of lightning. So we've decided that if we perish in a lightning storm while recording a Thor podcast, we want Viking funerals. So if you're listening to this, please make sure that happens. Yeah, I mean, you know, our souls will, of course, rise to Valhalla, will become the mythical Einherjar and await the last days, the final battle, Ragnarok itself. So, I mean, it's not plan A, but as plan Bs go, it could be a lot worse, right? Sure, and when all the Valhallen, you know, warriors fight, we can narrate the action, you know, with a a lot of uh, enthusiasm. That'll be our role. Um, Warrior bards, from what I understand in Icelandic culture, were called scalds. That was, like, totally a thing. Okay, okay, scalds. I got it. Sounds kind of badass, right? It does. It sounds like a metal band. Scald. I I suspect there's (laughs) at least one metal band called scald. Yep, yep. Uh, So, this time, we're going to be covering the Mighty Thor number 341 to 344. You may recall at the end of last episode, there was a big dragon that rose up from the ground and killed a Quebecois guy and swore vengeance against Thor, and that is going to be a big deal this time, too. As you can tell from the cover, which, uh, as a departure from the previous departure, is more of a typical Thor cover. You know, as Walter Simonson kind of came in, restarted everything, and and now we're back with Thor swinging the hammer, a giant dragon on the page, and the corner art is even, it's a bit similar. It's Thor, but he's, you know, holding the hammer up, which is is pretty cool. Looks a little bit more action-y, yeah. And I do like that Walter Simonson started his run with something just so far out there. You know, this other alien being able to wield Mjolnir, another hammer being forged, this great battle in space, and... When you have that kind of an opener, then the next thing to do is, I agree, to get a little bit back to the status quo, but to show how this status quo 
is uh, different than it used to be. It's a different feel than old Thor because Simonson has made this book totally his own. Yeah, I think that that big disruption was necessary to make this feel fresh and new now. And I do want to say, because I don't know if this came across quite right in our first episode, we've got nothing against pre-Simonson Thor. There's some awesome stuff to be found there. It's, it's just that we really, really like Simonson Thor. Yep, yep, yep. Well, as we may appear to be back at the status quo on Midgard, there is something, you know, big and epic and threatening on the horizon. Again, we see this great shadowy figure that we saw in the last issue. From the realms of endless night, by the power of the unfinished sword before me, I summon the Dark Elf. Heed my call. Seek out the second son of Odin. Doom! And in the lightless depths of space, a voice answers, I will. So next we see a majestic Thor in this full page panel, you know, swooping over New York and you see the skyline and you see all these great um, traffic uh, sound effects and these two word bubbles, Ronald and Mildred kind of reacting and and swooning to, to Thor. And I really enjoy this because we have the majesty of Thor. We have this fantastical space Viking stuff that we've seen in the last four issues contrasted with just... Earth being Earth and New York being New York, and not that New York isn't majestic in its own way, but it's more of an urban smog, like lots of life going on kind of thing. I like to think of it as, you know, Thor's just been through this epic godlike journey, but now he's back home and he kind of has to deal with regular life. And speaking of which, you know, he's back in New York and psyched, but there's a problem. Yet now that I am no longer the mortal physician Donald Blake... I have no home in all of Earth's many realms, and even the God of Thunder needs a place to hang his hammer on a cold, wintry night. Then in one of the funniest moments, I think, of this arc, he has this great interaction with a couple of punks while he's entering the Avengers Mansion. And these are like very 80s, mohawked, leather-vested punks, like the kind... I don't even know. I mean, I'm sure that was a real thing. I've seen pictures, but in the 80s, I was too busy being very small to really know. Today, driving in Portland, there was like a car full of them. I was like openly gaping at them because I I wanted to be like, I didn't know you still existed. Oh, that's wonderful. They're keeping it alive. They look like Sid Vicious like cosplayers. It was great. I mean, as somebody who attempts very hard to keep uh, the early 90s alive in his appearance, (laughs) I can certainly respect that. Listen, man, haven't you heard? Long hair is definitely out. Why not come over to our place for a mohawk? I thank thee, but were I to cut my hair, my helmet would fall off. And that's perfect. That's more of like Simonson's awesome wit. And then we see Thor, you know, disappearing into the Avengers mansion. And there are three blank panels as the narration says that we won't find out what's happened until next month. As it turns out, what happens is Secret Wars. You know, the big early Marvel event where uh, basically someone took a bunch of hero action figures in one hand and a bunch of villain action figures in the other hand and just sort of smushed them together while making explosion noises. The Beyonder, who is somehow the worst and yet the best? Pretty much. Yeah, (laughs) he as this cosmic force arranged this superhero versus supervillain fight that was largely designed to sell action figures and to be fair... I had so many Secret Wars action figures. They came with these little shields, like the hero ones were were round and the villain ones were square. They had these like lenticular images of the characters in question that you could slide into them. And they were really great. 
Iron Man's especially. I remember being excellent. And Wolverine had these snap-on claws. Oh, it was so good. I missed all that because I didn't get into Marvel Comics until like 1988. So I read some of the uh, Secret Wars stuff as back issues. And I was just like, what? What? Like, what? <laughs> it's pretty ridiculous. <laughs> especially Secret Wars 2 when he like has to learn how to go to the bathroom. I was just Spider-Man like, taught him how. Oh, my God. I guess if you're going to have some superhero do it, Spider-Man, he's your everyman. You know, he's not going to get too fancy. He's just going to go with the basics. It's like bringing this up for the second time in as many episodes, that famous Marvel Universe kids book, Spider-Man Poops. Oh, God. We're just going to keep coming back to this. How did we get here? What happened? <laughs> now I'm thinking about how different superheroes pee. Right? It get complicated for some of them. Rom Space Knight? I mean, how does that even work? Does Thor like whip it around like the hammer? Just sort of takes off into the air? Well, at this point, you really know whether you're going to keep listening to this podcast or not. I apologize. <laughs> so you're welcome. But in the comic itself, we don't actually see any of this uh, in terms of bathroom techniques or Secret Wars itself, because the next thing we know, Thor is back after Secret Wars. But meanwhile, we see Lorelai in the subways of New York, uh, following Loki's directions, trying to find somebody. But first, she's sexually harassed by punks. Oh, I like the other punks so much better. They were respectful and good-natured and wanted to give Thor a haircut, and these people are just just douchebags. I know. I guess there's, like, good punks and bad punks. It's kind of like in Skies of Arcadia, one of my very favorite role-playing games. The two types of pirates are the blue rogues, who are good guy pirates, and the black pirates, who are bad guy pirates. I'm pretty sure there were not actually any good guy pirates, but I choose to accept this reality instead of history. Sure. And, yeah, Lorelai, to remind everyone is a young enchantress, manipulative lady who has been hanging out with Loki. We met her first in the issues we covered last time, and we're going to be learning a lot more about her over the course of this arc. So Lorelai uses her powers to make these punks fight each other. I can sympathize a little more with Sith's antipathy toward Midgard if these are the typical inhabitants. And leaving the whack'em, sock'em sound effects behind, she seeks out her quarry. She, in fact, is here looking for the dragon Fafnir. Now, you may recall a great big dragon with an awesome growly voice from the end of last episode. That's this guy. And if you were a longtime Thor reader, you would recognize him. Fafnir showed up ages ago back in Thor in 1966, and he's been defeated by Thor and various other heroes a few times. His deal is that first he was this evil king who ruled an evil kingdom that Odin just smited the crap out of leaving Fafnir to wander the wastes, presumably to die. Thankfully, he found a magical pool and drank from it and turned into a giant dragon. I don't know if this is more Ranma one-half or Palace of the Silver Princess to do a particularly deep Dungeons & Dragons cut. I admit, I've never played Dungeons & Dragons. What? I know. Oh, my, dude. My brain, I partly my brain doesn't work that way. Partly if my brain started to work that way, it would never stop. I mean, mine never stopped. Ex yeah, exactly. I, I, I seem to lead a relatively functional life. <laughs> I am too obsessive to take on D&D. Uh, &D. Okay, I guess that's reasonable. <laughs> but if you ever change your mind. <laughs> yes. Hit me up. So anyway, um, we last saw Fafnir at the end of Thor number 341 as he was vowing to kill Thor. So you pointed out earlier, has he just been, like, hanging out in the sewers underground? You would think after the end of the previous episode that he was going to find Thor, and instead he's just lazing around in the sewers of New York. Okay, so here's my take on this. So I've been podcasting for a few years. I know you're, you're a little bit newer at it, but I've personally found, and maybe it's the same for you, 
after you record an episode, like getting all enthusiastic and projecting everything into your voice, like you're pretty tired, right? <laughs> all his bluster tired him out. Right. Poor little champ Saul Tucker. He's got to take a nap. Yeah, nappy poo. That's right. Now he's underground, which I guess is comfortable if you're a dragon. But Lorelai has found him. She has indeed, and she's prepared to mentally dominate him using her sorceress wiles. And that does not go as planned as he quickly mentally overpowers Lorelai and she spins smaller and smaller. Yeah, the way the panels are laid out, it's like they almost spiral into themselves as he gets more and more into her mind. It's quite effective. Like, something really only comics can do, or that first Ang Lee Hulk movie, I suppose, is use panel structure to contribute to the story in a way that a standard, you know, looking at it through a camera or just through your eyes can't. And Simonson is great about that sometimes, here especially. Next, we see Thor visiting Nick Fury to ask for help establishing a civilian identity since he doesn't have Donald Blake anymore and he needs a human identity and a place to live. And I really love for some reason that he shows up at the S.H.I.E.L.D. helicarrier on like a little hover bike. Thor doesn't need a hover bike. He can just throw his hammer and hang on, which, by the way, that's how he flies. He throws his hammer and he hangs onto the strap. And that is my favorite superhero physics thing ever. But I guess in this case, I don't know, like, was the hover bike just really fun? I have a theory about that. You know, with this whole arc... Thor is restarting his personal life. He's trying to make connections with people, and I think he's just really trying to fit in with the S.H.I.E.L.D. crew. You know, Nick Fury has a flying car. They've got the helicarriers. He he just wants to be cool, man. Okay, he's just riding a hover bike, just like any other ordinary Joe. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. But I do find this interesting here that Thor, I mean, despite the fact that he is beloved by the people of Midgard, asterisk Earth, um, that he does want to have an identity where they don't recognize him as Thor. And this brings me back to what Sif said in an earlier issue about how she wished that Odin had never given Thor his Midgard identity because she felt like that's what bonded him to Earth. So conversely, perhaps Thor feels he needs that to connect with Earth. Yeah, I mean, I can see that. Like, if he's a big famous dude, then people aren't really going to treat him like just a guy. And from what we've seen of Thor, he enjoys the simpler pleasures of Midgard. He enjoys connecting with and overlapping with normal, everyday people. And, you know, a secret identity, maybe that's a necessary thing. Well, he's going to get his chance because Nick hands him over to Marco for a makeover. Makeover! I really wish there was a makeover montage here where he was like trying on different <laughs> outfits and then Nick Fury was just shaking his head and then he tried on a different one. If this was the Alan Davis Thor, this would definitely be happening. Alan Davis Thor. Has Alan Davis ever drawn Thor? He definitely did. Um, it was a miniseries. I don't remember what it was called. And it was Thor... Iron Man and Captain America. And I think they went to Asgard or near Asgard. It was after like Captain America came back from the dead and they were all trying to be bros again after Civil War. Oh, okay. I've, I've got to read this. This is amazing. I will have to look it up and I will post it when we post this episode. Excellent. Yay. Um, But what Thor does end up with is a relatively standard disguise. It's, you know, a t-shirt, jeans, a ponytail. I gotta say, guy kind of rocks a ponytail. He does, you know, he's he, it kind of compliments his huge, giant shoulders. Oh, man. And here I am with a ponytail in the summer and just regular guy shoulders. <laughs> now I feel inadequate. But of course, there is one missing element. As Nick Fury says, here, put these cheaters on. They always worked for that other guy. In fact, we are totally doing a Clark Kent. Thor gets fake glasses so he doesn't look like Thor. And the comic isn't content just to subtly reference this. Because Thor walks out the door and immediately bumps into literally Lois and Clark. I, and I love this. I love that Marvel's not afraid to be like, you know what? We're just going to have Clark Kent and Lois Lane directly out of Superman right here just to make a joke. I feel like you don't really see that kind of thing these days at all. 
Yeah, you were mentioning before with, with the big two being owned by big corporations that maybe that just might be more difficult to do. Might just be too litigious. It might be too risky. Yeah. So that's all going on. But meanwhile, back in Asgard... Odin sends his ravens, Hugin and Munin, to discover the secret of the origins of the demons we met in the last arc, the, the demons that were threatening Beta Ray Bill's people. Some terrible agency is at work in the world and we must uncover it. Grow tall and strong until you have the strength to fly across the cosmos to the burning galaxy and seek out the demon's source. And Hugin and Munin, now large and, I don't know, cooler looking in some indescribable way, do indeed fly out of Asgard to just find out what's going on out there in the deep, dark cosmos. Next, we see the newly minted Sigurd Jarlson, a.k.a. Thor, visiting Nick Fury's cousin, Jerry Sapristi, to get a construction job. I love Jerry Sapristi. I don't know what it is with me loving, like, grumpy but good-hearted New Yorker older men. Uh, th that sounds kind of weird, but you know what I mean. Like, it's just this archetype that I always find delightful. Like, you know, they're going to be a jerk, but they have a heart of gold underneath. But their job interview is interrupted by a scream. Lorelai is tied to a crane, and Sigurd springs into action to rescue her. Yeah, this uh, orange-haired woman is just unconscious and bound at the top of a crane in a construction site, which I feel like is probably an OSHA violation of many sorts. Yeah, they're going to be written up for this. They totally are. At least everyone was wearing their hard hat. And I love the way that Thor springs into action because he doesn't want to, you know, give his civilian identity away right after he got it. So he doesn't want to use Mjolnir or fly or call down the lightning or whatever. And so he just springs forward and we get to see what a guy like Thor would do if he wasn't doing supernatural stuff, which, as it turns out, is be like Olympic class athletic looking. Yeah, I mean, he's still in amazing shape and he still has this strong, you know, urge to do good. He can't let Lorelai die. So he jumps into action. And as it turns out, action involves a freaking dragon. Because Lorelai, unsurprisingly, was just bait. And here is Fafnir. Fafnir wants to draw Thor out. He doesn't know that Sigurd Jarlson is Thor, but he knows that Thor, you know, can't resist a damsel in distress. So Thor uses the chaos to Thor up using the residual enchantment still in Mjolnir and fights a dragon. Eventually, Fafnir retreats, breaking through to the river, which unleashes this giant flood. That, so Thor ends up having to collapse the entire cavern so that the subway won't flood. So at this point, the construction site is pretty much toast, thanks to, in part, Fafnir, and in part, Thor, you know, defafnering the site. But he realizes that Fafnir is more than a match for him, so he's worried about what's going to happen when they next meet. However, he still doesn't want to botch this job interview, so he turns back into his Sigurd Jarlson identity, retrieves Lorelai, who he puts someplace safe, and she thanks him and falls asleep on him. And I like that they have a very Lois and Clark exchange here. Oh, where am I? I remember some horrible dream, doing things as though I couldn't help myself. I, I thought, oh, who are you? Just relax, miss. You've had enough excitement for one day. I could totally hear that in Christopher Reeve's voice. Oh, and like Margot Kidder as uh, as Lorelai? Yes, absolutely. I, I would be totally okay with that casting if, you know, it weren't for age and death and other things that would make that unrealistic were it to be made today. Yeah, yeah. So let's go back to the 80s and make it happen. <laughs> Problem solved. I'm pretty sure Mjolnir can travel through time, so if we were worthy of that and could lift it. Totally. Does this mean we have to lift a car? Because I don't know if I could do that, even if I was worthy. I, I mean, I feel like we could make it work. We'll just team up. 
And so, yeah, Thor has now met Lorelai. Now, he doesn't know she's Lorelai. He doesn't recognize her. She's in a sort of mortal guise while she's on Midgard. All he knows is that, man, this woman is beautiful, and he's really glad he got to save her. But in the meantime, also, Thor hears a voice calling his name again. And this is something that actually uh, happened earlier in the issue as well. He keeps hearing this sort of ancient call. Right, just like the ancient Vikings used to do when they were praying to the Norse pantheon. This is strange and surprising, and Thor's going to file that one for the moment. But the important thing is, Sigurd has a job. Exactly. Congratulations, Sigurd. Hopefully your other days on the job will be a little less uh, eventful than this one. Welcome to the construction site. Hope you survive the experience. However, not all is dragon fights on construction sites. Hey, that rhymes. Because... Back in space, in our next issue, the great figure we've seen before is now more of a visible red demon. We see a little bit more of him each time, and he's holding his white-hot blade, that which he has been forging high, as he sees Odin's ravens. Let all now be silent. The black ravens of Odin have come hiding in the night, seeking answers for their master. But the darkness will not protect them, and without the dark to hide them, the ravens will die with the knowledge they have obtained. Let this, then, be the first blow against the power of Asgard. Doom. Oh, bad day to be a raven. Speaking of Asgard, we will now go to Valhalla. Now, you may have heard of Valhalla if you're passingly familiar with Norse mythology. Basically, it's where the worthiest of the worthy dead go. Uh, you know, the, the less worthy people go to hell with one L, which apparently is not a very pleasant place. But the really awesome ones go to Valhalla. It's a hall specifically in Asgard, and there, they're sort of living ghosts, I guess. Fight all day and feast all night, and it's pretty great. And they await the final battle. That's what they're there for, to be Odin's army in the last conflict. Now, that sounds awesome, but are they eating goat every day, too? Uh, I feel like they have multiple options. It's just when Thor is traveling that he eats his goats every morning. Okay, okay. I just wanted to get that straight. Mm -hmm. But the way Simonson portrays Valhalla, this is amazing. And part of that is the buildings themselves. I mean, we have these architecturally impressive edifices arching forward toward the heavens with white and gold all over them. But part of it is those heavens. Yeah, it's full of nebulas and stars and planets and all kinds of dramatic space things. I love how space is just full of stuff in Thor. Like, it's not just a bunch of black. It's, let's have all of the awesome things you think of when you think space and just cram them all together. It's like when you put your knuckles against your eyelids, you know, and you start seeing all those sparks. Like, maybe that's his reference. It could be kind of like that. <laughs> From what I understand, uh, the people who were writing Doctor Strange back in, I believe, the 70s uh, would just go around Central Park while tripping out of their mind on acid, and that's where they would get their plot ideas. Nice. Well, that explains a lot. I think it kind of does. <laughs> Odin toasts the various heroes, but the goddess Saga sees that he's troubled. He speaks to her the last remaining seat in the hall, how the winds speak to him of it soon being filled, and he wonders what will happen then. Right, because, I mean, there's a foretold number of Einherjar. The Einherjar are the, uh, the honored dead, the warriors of Valhalla, and there's just one left. There's just one empty seat. Kind of like, what was it, the, the Siege Perilous, the seat at King Arthur's table? Yes. And Norse mythology being all about prophecy, all about everything leading up to the final battle. I mean, I could see Odin being a little ponderous about this. A little, not nervous exactly, but cautious. So basically, when this seat fills up, something big is going to happen. Absolutely. 
Uh, one thing I also appreciate here is that of the Gathered on Harriar, while not many in the foreground are, it looks like a number of them are female, are female warriors. And I think that's great because, of course, you know, when you look at the worthiest uh, warriors in the realm, you're not just going to have a bunch of dudes. I mean, they have some great facial hair, don't get me wrong, but still. Yeah, they've got a lot of women in there. And with, you know, the women we've met thus far, like Sif and soon we'll see Frigga, like that's completely, you know, within canon here. And then, of course, there's Valkyrie herself. That was always confusing that there's a Valkyrie named Valkyrie in the Marvel <laughs> Universe. And Hildegard, one of my personal favorites. Sure, sure. Well, back in Manhattan, Jerry sighs at having to build the site all over again in his, like, great New York way. And a medic comes to fetch uh, Sigurd because the woman he saved wants to talk to him before the hospital. And she thanks him graciously from the stretcher that she's on, saying, As soon as I can, I'd like to be able to thank you properly for saving my life, if you'll let me. She is innocent seductiveness incarnate. She is very good at her job. What I love about this scene is seeing Thor with all these regular Joes. They're like, yeah, go get her, Thor. Go do it. Yeah, and then he forgets to get her number, and they're chiding him for that. And he realizes he didn't even get her name. Exactly. All he knows is that there's this beautiful woman who he saved from a dragon, which... If I were Thor, I'd be a little suspicious, but I guess then again, when you've been superheroing around in New York for long enough, these sort of things just happen. I'd imagine you don't attribute too much significance to them. Yeah, how many damsels in distress has he rescued, you know, over his hundreds of years? So it's just another day in the life of Thor, I guess. But one thing that doesn't happen every day is what happened a little bit before, which is a voice again calling him as the ancient Vikings used to call to their deities. And this time he figures, maybe I should check this out. So it's time to change his duds by whacking his hammer on the ground. Away! I really love that he keeps Mjolnir in a duffel bag he carries around while he's at work. It kind of makes me wonder, like, what if he sets it down somewhere inconvenient and his boss wants to move it and then just can't lift it at all? I mean, this could go wrong. This could, you know, spoil the whole surprise very easily. I love that idea. Yeah, uh, can you get your stuff out of the way? And maybe someone being like, Oh, man, I'm getting old. I can't even pick up this duffel bag. So they're just like, hey, you, get it out of here. Exactly. <laughs> so Thor flies through the sky, flies farther and farther south across almost the entire globe, remembering how in days of yore mortals would call out to the Norse gods, and sometimes those gods, like him, would answer. And this feels just like thousands of years ago did in that regard. This hasn't happened in so long, but here Thor is in his new mortal identity, playing the role of a very ancient deity. And he's led to a volcanic caldera in Antarctica, and at this point, this is where Miles and I both thought we were going to the Savage Land. Right, I mean, we have so much X-Men experience in our comics repertoire, we're like, okay, temperate area in the middle of Antarctica, clearly there's going to be dinosaurs, and Kazar, and the mutates in their weird tower that Sauron was in that one time. Zaladane. Oh, frickin' Zaladane. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But this is not that at all. Yeah, it turns out that maybe next door to the Savage Land is an ancient Viking village with uh, squat huts and winding walls and everything. Yeah, and Thor is surprised because, you know, he, he wasn't expecting to hear somebody calling to him like the Vikings used to, but he also wasn't expecting to see a Viking village looking just like they did so many thousands of years ago. So he kind of Goldilocks it up. He uh, notices that there's a recently made pot of soup, so he tastes it. I mean, Thor is being one trusting gourmand here. That could have been there for ages, or it could have just been really bad soup. I think Volsag's cooking show has prepared Thor for this. Ah, bringing it back to that. Yes, I like it. <laughs> I agree, and I'm going to call that canon. Woo! So he finds a Viking graveyard with dozens of rings of stones. 
The stone ships that carried the villagers away from the land of the living. These were my people. These were true Vikings. And Thor is touched deeply by this. And as we've talked a little bit, he's no longer Donald Blake, which in a way is good because he doesn't have this very vulnerable uh, mortal guys, but at the same time, he's lost his life. Donald Blake had friends, he had a, a place to live. Thor is starting from scratch. So I think because of that, like this Viking village must have been so much more important to him. Exactly. This is a callback to an era where Thor knew very much who he was. This was home. This was his identity, this culture right here. All the rings point to an elaborately carved gate in a cliff, so... Okay, wait, uh, what is this, like, level one or something? Is Aquamentus inside? Like, seriously, the way this gate uh, looks just in the middle of a cliff face near a graveyard, it really does feel like there's got to be various small keys and keyses and that sort of thing inside. Is there a Thor video game? Uh, there was a Thor video game that came out around the time of the first Thor movie, and I am ashamed to say I actually haven't played it. I heard it was okay. Well, Thor approaches the door and... With hammer in hand, I will boldly enter and... Ram! As the door slams shut behind him. Hmm, perhaps a more cautious approach would have been best. I feel like Thor would get along well with my D&D party. Let's just charge blindly forth into everything and then kind of wish we hadn't. It's like because Thor has stumbled on an ancient Viking village, he's kind of regressed a little to his very overconfident, perhaps egocentric self and immediately gets slapped down. A thousand deadly spears, all aimed at the very spot on which I stand. So then Thor smashes the spears, dives into a cave to escape a rock slide, fends off swinging claws and hammers, leaps chasms, fights through poison gas and jets of flame, before finally smashing the boulders that seal the exit with a brackthaum. This is totally Thor and the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. It is. It kind of feels to me like he's just fast-forwarding through the greatest hits of Dragon Mountain. Like, there's so much D&D stuff in this arc. I don't know why I keep coming back to that, possibly because I have played a lot of D&D. But, like, it's just hazard after hazard after hazard, hazard and trap after trap after trap. I think you're just trying to tempt me into joining some sort of D&D cult. Oh, it's my Odin-like strategy. You found me out. Um, but, yeah, he breaks through to the end of this labyrinth and sees a badass Viking warrior in this armor of gold and tunic of orange and gray. Look well, little god, upon the visage of death. None have ever ventured so far into the labyrinth of terror. None have proven worthy to die by my own spear. If I am to journey today to the halls of death, then let it be in the fighting fury of my warrior's wrath. And he knocks the Viking's helmet away, and the guy is old. Yeah, like, like extra old. And he begs Thor to finish him, but Thor says, no way. And so spins his hammer in front of him to drill a passage to the surface. I, I love this. Like, he's actually just making this uh, column of space through the stone, out of the labyrinth of terror, to the ground above. It kind of reminds me of that one scene in the Shawshank Redemption where they, where they tunnel to the surface. Yeah, do you think this guy has, like, a poster of Valkyrie and behind there there's a big hole? I'm going to say probably yes. <laughs> so... Yeah, Thor brings the Viking to the surface and removes his armor because it's clear that this Viking, this old guy, was barely able to even stand in the armor. And underneath, the guy is kind of tiny. He's just a withered old man. Kind of like one of those cats that's mostly fur. Kind of like that. Exactly. His name is Aelith the Lost, and he explains that his ancestors found this valley over 900 years ago after losing a battle in England, but their ship got wrecked as they got close and survivors founded this village. But now... He's the last one alive. 
and the labyrinth of terror that Thor fought his way through to get to Aleph, that was their training ground, as he says. We had no foes, so we created our own. And Aleph decided he was going to trap a god. He was going to die in the most valiant manner possible to avoid the peaceful straw death that would send him to the gray plains of hell and ascends to Valhalla as one of the Anheriar. But now Thor has found him out, and he knows that that goal is hopeless. I will die in bed and be content. No, grandfather, you shall not. Do you still think that your fate rests within yourself? That I have come all this way to discover a dotard seeking Valhalla through deception? You have called upon the gods of the icy north, and they have answered you. Now, your life is mine. And this interaction is so special because nobody can get Thor like Aleph. He is the last of the ancient Vikings. He's the last of, of the people who really worshipped Thor as a god. And now that Thor is kind of at loose ends, like this has got to be so important to him. Exactly. But other important things are afoot elsewhere in the cosmos. Elsewhere, beyond the fields we know, an endless host chants. The name, the name, the name, the name, and a voice as old as time replies, Doom. The sword is named Twilight. Every issue that passes, every time we are taken beyond the fields we know, things get a little closer. This hulking figure gets closer to his goal. We see a little more of him. And like we said last episode, this build will continue literally for the first year of the comic before exploding outward to take over the entire plot. I love that kind of foreshadowing. I love that from issue number one, from page number one of his run, Walter Simonson knew exactly what he was doing and gave us just a little bit every 22 pages toward what's going to be one of the most climactic battles in all of Thor history. They really maintain and build the tension, you know, just a little bit every issue. Readers reading in real time must have just been like, what is going to happen? Exactly. I mean, I, I talk a lot about with Jay and Jay and Miles explain the X-Men, just how Claremont's long game was so impressive. He would set things up ages before they actually came true. And Simonson is excellent at that as well. Man, they don't do it like that anymore. <laughs> ah, all these new number ones with these whippersnappers changing writers and artists every couple of years. Marvel now, Marvel now. You have to have it right now, huh, kids? Get off my lawn. Ah, damn kids with their rap music and their baggy pants and their... <laughs> multiple relaunches of titles to because sales work better that way. <laughs> and their spiky hair, those punks. Oh, wait, that was the 80s. <laughs> Never and, mind. And those people you recently saw. Yes, posers. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're carrying the fire, just like Ale of the Lost has kept Viking culture alive. Are they going to call Johnny Rotten down from the heavens so they can, like, OD and go to, I don't know, punk heaven, punk hell? CBGBs. Right. <laughs> But meanwhile, in New York City, far away from space, and far away, I don't know, was CBGB's in New York? I don't know where it was. But regardless, far away from many things, the dragon Fafnir is ravaging New York City. Bring me the son of a cursed Odin, or I shall destroy this entire city. At one point, Fafnir is totally talking with his mouth full of girders. Oh man, that was, that was rude. Like, was, was he raised in a barn in the Lost Kingdom of Nastrund? 
He's been buried for a long time, right? So I think he's just lost all sense of propriety. Oh, geez. I bet he doesn't even know which fork to use at a banquet. (laughs) But the news is wondering, okay, where's the mighty Thor? This dragon is smashing stuff up, asking for him. Is Thor going to show up and stop the carnage? Lorelai is also wondering this uh, back at her apartment, watching the news and anticipating seeing Thor. And while she's been waiting, she's been brewing some golden mead to make sure that Thor will never think of anyone else again. And I gotta say, when I was a kid, I didn't know what mead was. I didn't know that it was like honey wine, essentially, that the Vikings were really into. So I just assumed that golden mead was the name of some magical potion. I didn't realize it was just, you know, booze with an enchantment in it. Sure, sure. You know, that makes me want to try mead. We do have a mutual friend who brews mead. We do. That's right. We, we should talk to him. Yeah. Um, I drank a lot of really cheap crappy mead in college. I don't, I don't regret it, but trying good mead is pretty appealing. Even cheap mead must have been better than Mad Dog 2020, which is what I drank in college. Oh, <laughs> yes, yes, I suspect it was. But this whole scene, this reminds me of a, a recent movie I watched called The Love Witch by Anna Biller. I don't know if you've had a chance to see that. No, I haven't. Well, it is a throwback to like the 60s sort of horror thriller about a young witch named Elaine who spends a lot of time making love potions because she's addicted to love and of course her love potions kill everybody of course well that's what Lorelai's doing here I mean maybe not the kill everybody part but she is indeed brewing a love potion into this golden mead in hopes of ensnaring Thor Speaking of Thor, he is still in Antarctica with Aleph, and Aleph is in despair. His plan to die fighting Thor failed, and he's too old to die as a proper warrior. I do note here that the big proclamation Thor was having at the end of last issue has toned down a little bit. This goes back to my theory of big speeches making a person a little bit tired. I'm going to stand by that. I think it's more like a, a, when your dad gets really mad at you and he yells at you, and then he thinks about it for a minute, and he's like... Okay, let's let's talk about fixing this problem. And indeed, that's what they're talking about, because Thor clearly admires Aleph's courage and moxie. And while he can't grant Aleph direct access to Valhalla, that's not within the purview of the God of Thunder. He can offer him a glorious battle with a freaking dragon. So he calls upon Odin. Fafnir is so powerful... Thor needs a shield bearer or someone to avenge him. So he asks for a sign. And a full half hour passes as Aleph starts to wonder, what have I gotten myself into? I mean, this this plan was not a good plan. This is not going to work. I'm just going to die the straw death after having humiliated myself. But finally, eventually, we see a sound effect actually come from Aleph's cape from one panel to another, which is a nice little touch. And Cloud Rider, an ebony-winged horse, arrives, as does Thor's chariot with Toothnasher and Toothgrinder. Odin hath heard and granted my plea. Aleph, last of the Vikings, into battle we ride. Together! And this is a beautiful full-page panel. It looks like the horse and chariot are coming directly out of the sun with a blazing red and gold sky above them. And in awe, Aleph approaches the Pegasus Cloud Rider and then turns away. He's afraid he's too old and will dishonor himself. But Thor will have none of this. What words are these I hear? Where is the warrior who dared to call the gods out of the sky? Who lifted his weapon against the mightiest fighter of Asgard? Whose people dared the furious elements of the ocean in open boats and laughed at the fear? Does he seek an easy death, a cheap seat in the halls of Valhalla? I do not speak to the old man cringing before me. I speak to the warrior who dared test the metal of the mighty Thor. 
Let him answer me. That is a hell of a pep talk. Right? And Aleph, his courage renewed, approaches Cloud Rider and touches Thor's outstretched hammer, suddenly empowered, feeling like the warrior he was in his youth, the warrior he always knew he could be. My lord Thor, let us ride and let the bards look to their ballads. For our deed shall resound across Midgard to the very roots of the world ash itself. That is more like it, Aleph the Lost, last of the Vikings. When suddenly an old man appears and greets them, blessing Aleph's spear in the process. And we've seen this old man before in his blue cloak and traveler's blue hat. This is, in fact, Odin in his traveler's guise. Aleph has no idea, so he just says, hey, have a good day, buddy. Thanks. Hope things go well for you. Then he's like, wait, who was that guy? And the old man has disappeared. Of course. So is Aleph just having, like, the best Viking day ever right now? He really is. He fought Thor. He's going to fight beside Thor. He met Odin. Plus, he's riding a flying horse. That is pretty awesome. And it is so legitimately epic. I mean, we could, like, joke about it, but this is just, it's, it's heartbreakingly beautiful because this guy has lost everything in his world. He is the last of his people in this lost village that's been preserving its culture away from the world for, like, thousands of years. And now... He was hoping to die a glorious death fighting a god in battle. Now he's riding beside that god into an even more glorious battle. It's like he took the last of his energy and, and the last of his courage to somehow will Thor to him. And he is getting his heart's desire. It's amazing. What's also amazing is the devastation Fafnir the dragon is causing in New York City. Very well, Thor. Since you choose to remain in cowardly hiding... I shall commence with the serious destruction of this city. It's all fun and games until Thor stands you up. But then Thor and Aleph do in fact swoop in on Pegasus and Chariot. Let the battle be joined! Death to Fafnir, for Odin and Asgard! Kratham! And the battle is amazing and is narrated as battles so often are in the Marvel Universe by a reporter. This one named... Chuck Churkel, which is my favorite reporter name possibly ever. It's wonderful. It sounds like a nice giggle. Chuck Churkel. I mean, Chuck, chuckling, chuckling. Right? Uh, yeah, he's, he's a laugh and a half. Maybe a stage name. Um, <laughs> I looked it up, and Chuck Churkel, this is his first appearance. He's going to appear once more in Thor number 381, but he'll be miscolored as being white there while he's black here. Whoops. Awkward. To me, he reminded me of Purd Happily, the rather dim, pawny TV personality from Parks and Recreation. <laughs> he actually did with me as well. But the battle continues as Fafnir spits flame at Aleph and unhorses him with a whack of his tail, and Aleph begins falling to the earth. I am unhorsed, and so high, so high. And this is after Aleph has blocked multiple blows with his shield for Thor, as they've been running circles around Fafnir and fighting him far more effectively than Thor could himself. And this is the first moment, this is the first time when we realize Aleph is just a mortal. He's just a man. He's empowered by the god of thunder. Yes, he's empowered by the deities of his ancestors. But here he is, high in the sky, in a city bigger than he ever knew existed, fighting an actual dragon. And now here he is, falling probably to his death. It's incredibly poignant. And again, it, it kind of underscores how important he becomes to Thor. Yeah, and just the visual here is his helmet falls off his head and we see that, that old man's face. He, you know, he looks like this incredible invincible warrior in full armor, but underneath he's, he's clearly not long for this world. Well, this fuels Thor's rage, but Fafnir hits him hard enough to knock off his helmet and causing the reporters to flee. 
and Aleph enchantment fading and bleeding his last. He's just attempting to bring himself to his feet. He's determined to help Thor, who's badly injured. Not even voice left to shout with. But I will be the weapon for Odin, for Thor, and Asgard! And with the very last of his strengths, he drags himself up, panel by agonizing panel, to the high ground, brings his spear above him, and falls onto Fafnir, using the last of his life to pierce the dragon's invincible hide. And just the very point of the spear, but that's enough for Thor. As he rises above Fafnir and lets loose a mighty blow from Mjolnir, driving the spear deep. Now, by all the strength of my heritage, by the power of Mjolnir, let evil perish! So Fafnir dies, but so did Aleph. Aleph! Aleph! Has the life fled your shattered body? Can you no longer hear even the voices of the gods? A truer companion hath no mortal been to me. Oh, Aleph, my shield-bearer, Aleph. And this is a legitimately affecting moment. I teared up when I read this because Thor, after finding, you know, the one person who was a connection to his ancient past, the one mortal, has lost him. This reminded me a lot of the text in the Conan novels that are also, that's also used at the beginning of the Conan comics, describing Conan as a man of gigantic melancholies and gigantic mirth, because, like we mentioned last episode, what the mighty Thor is all about, what Asgard and all of this mythology within the Marvel Universe is all about, is intensity, intensity of action, intensity of emotions, intensity of everything, and that includes sorrow as well as joy, as well as rage, and it's so rare we see this pure sorrow, we see this loss in a warrior like Thor or really anyone in these comics. And it just hits so hard, knowing the wide range of what Thor can feel, knowing how intensely this is hitting him right now. As we lose this character, we've come to respect and come to love and come to root for in just a couple of short issues. And Thor funnels his grief into throwing him a Viking funeral. And this is amazing. He lifts up Fafnir and puts him at the feet of Aleph, like the ancient Vikings put dogs at the feet of their dead, and summons the lightning and the storm themselves. Hear me, you elements! Hear me, storms! Rise up in your wrath! A warrior hath died this day, and you shall carry him to his destiny! No longer Aleph the Lost, but Aleph the Dragon Slayer! Strike now, and fire this holy mound! And the funeral pyre explodes into flames, and we see Odin welcoming the last Viking into Valhalla. I mean, goddamn. I seriously have something in my eye. And the panel we see here, the panel with Aleph the Lost, now Aleph the Dragon Slayer, riding this black pegasus at the head of the host of the Valkyries themselves, Odin filling the sky behind him. This is the grandest destiny Aleph could ever have hoped for, and he has achieved it by sacrificing his last to serve Thor. Next, we see Sigurd Jarlson back in his Brooklyn apartment, lonely and alone, but somebody knocks. This is Melody, as she introduces herself. In fact, Lorelai, she's arrived to thank Thor for saving her life, or to thank Sigurd, as the case may be. And she proposes mead and a back rub and taking his shirt off. But all I have to say is, Thor... Anyone whose name ends with an I cannot be trusted. We've got Lorelai, Melody, Loki, come on. So listeners, if your name ends with I, be the exception that proves the rule. Be noble. Don't be manipulative and deceptive because nobody likes that. I mean, except Loki and his opinions aren't good opinions. Rise above the I. <laughs> right. 
And so that's our story. That is the tale of Fafnir, of Sigurd Jarlsson, of the last Viking, the last survivor of his ancient civilization. And it's pretty great. But we have one more tale to tell. We have one more issue to share. That being Thor number 344. But first, uh, some asides related to Balder from the previous issues. Right, because while we do try to condense plot lines within the podcast to make them a little clearer in an audio format, we've been cutting back to Balder and his grand sorrows for a few issues now. So let's talk a little bit about what we've missed. Volstag comes to Balder's house looking for him, but is distracted by his larder, a.k.a. his pantry. Because, of course, Balder, not wanting to be disturbed by his dear friend Volstag, has left the one trap he knew Volstag could never escape. The incident with Agnar, the warrior who was seeking out Balder for killing Agnar's father, that's convinced Balder that he's just got to get out of here. He's got to escape. He needs to leave until his legend is forgotten by everyone, ideally also by himself. But he's observed by Carnilla, the Norn Queen, who wants to win Balder for herself. Carnilla is a sorceress. She rules the realm of Nornheim, which is within the borders of Asgard, yet manages to, quite impressively, be its own independent nation. She's been into Balder for a long time, ever since she first appeared back in the 1960s. She's a villain, yes, but his nobility, it calls to her. And I gotta say, the way they connect in this arc, I kinda buy that, when you have two characters so morally opposed who nonetheless find something to respect inside the other. Yeah, they do seem to have a friendship with each other, and Balder trusts her to a degree, and she seems to truly care about him. And we see a bit of that in something that happens in Thor number 342, which is as Balder sits alone by the fire, he detects a robed figure on the outskirts and welcomes that figure to join him, saying there's enough fire for two. And it is, of course, Carnilla. And she has some advice for him, because she's been watching him using her mystical seeing powers. Let it go, Balder! Every living creature is a plaything of the fates and bows to the will of time eventually. You cannot carry the responsibility for every death, for every cry of mercy. And she cups his face. That is a lesson I have yet to learn, my queen. And he gently pulls away. Then may you learn it soon, brave Balder, before you tear yourself apart. I just love their interaction so much, like as many crappy things as Carnilla has done, as much as Balder has fallen into this great melancholy, like, there's just this very human connection between the two of them. And I have to say, I really agree with what she's saying. I mean, Balder is a warrior. He's killed a lot of people. That is the way it is. And it, I understand, well, I can't really understand. It must have been terrible to directly confront that in hell but the only way forward is to move through unless he's ready to die exactly and sure enough he eventually does join up with her in nornheim and that's what takes us to thor number 344 whatever happens to balder the brave but first as you might be expecting by this point let's go beyond the fields we know to the depths of space so here we see the shadowy figure. He smashes the sword into a lake of brimstone. Doom! And it is tempered. The sword is named, the sword is tempered, and the ravens have, from what we can tell, been slain at this point. This figure, whatever his goal is, he's getting closer to it, clearly. My favorite part of this panel is the Doom sound effect is sliced in half by Twilight, which is amazing. I love how sound effects can become part of the panels, can become part of the art. That's something that Russell Dodderman does very well in the current run of Mighty Thor, the one about the female Thor. Like, you'll see Mjolnir smashing into the ground, and the crash will be spelled out by, like, the cracks that are spreading in the concrete or whatever. Dude, I have to read that. You really do. I mean, I've said it before, but Jason Aaron's run on Thor... 
is probably my second favorite after Simonson. And the more issues of Aaron's run come out, the closer it is in second place. Nice. I am going to read this in my copious free time. Huh? Recommended. <laughs> so in Nornkeep, the keep in the center of Nornheim, nice clear name there, Gary, the wolf of Odin, approaches and freaks everybody out, understandably. It's a great big wolf. But Balder recognizes Gary as a messenger sent to bring Balder home back to Asgard. And just to interject here, Nornheim kind of looks like Arizona. You know, it kind of does. I don't know if Arizona has castles quite that impressive. Probably not. Just a uh, cactus. But back in Asgard, Odin is moping on his throne, his remaining raven lying on a cushion. Remaining raven, you might ask? Well, in fact, Odin tells his wife Frigga, also known as Freya or Freja, depending on how one might pronounce it, what happened. So in flashback, Odin sent his ravens, Hugin and Munin, thought in memory, to seek out the cause of the great darkness that he hasn't been able to figure out, empowering them to be huge using rune magic. Right, we talked about that a little briefly. Randomly, the two ravens, Hugin and Munin, they were the inspirations in my Norse D&D game that I was in that I'm going to keep bringing up apparently <laughs> like every five minutes this episode. Um, we had ravens named Orn and Einar. They were two familiars of the wizard I was playing and the uh, warlock uh, a friend was playing. But only I took the feats to actually have my familiar be able to do stuff. So Einar, the other character's familiar, was just completely useless and annoying and constantly uh, commenting on everything that was going on and getting us into trouble. And I fell in love with both of them. <laughs> Nice. But anyway, yeah, Hugin and Munin, they were struck down by the mighty blade twilight of this hulking figure, and only one of them managed to escape back to Asgard, pursued by tendrils of shadow and of darkness. We come upon Heimdall, who witnesses a first. The stars themselves are blotted out as Munin returns, badly wounded, with Hugin nowhere to be seen. And Heimdall cries out, be gone, Shadow! There is no place for you here in the Golden Realm, and I am pledged to defend this bridge with my life! And he manages to rescue Munin and keep Munin safe until Odin returns. Back with Odin, Frigga, his wife, can tell that he's perturbed and asks him what's going on, and all he'll say is Baldur may never forgive him for what he's going to ask him. And Baldur does, in fact, arrive to find Odin in his greatest finery and all of the jewels and purple cloth and regality that he can wear. This is Odin in full Allfather, in full leader of Asgard, Realm of the Gods mode. It's like he had to put on his full authority to ask Baldur this terrible task. And he quickly reveals what that task is. He needs Baldur to deliver a message to Loki. Loki, the guy who killed Baldur with a mistletoe arrow, sending him into hell, which has left him in this shell-shocked state. My lord, you would send me to the god responsible for my death, who trapped me in hell with the legions of the dead until I escaped, who despises me with a rancor matched only by his hatred of Thor himself. And yes, he is, because everyone knows Balder only speaks the truth, so Loki will believe him that, you know, Odin really needs Loki. And Balder says, okay, but he will not fight and he will not kill, not even for Odin, not even for Asgard. So Balder journeys on his horse Silverhoof through the dangers on the way to Loki. And I love that in these scenes, I mean, Balder is significantly overweight at this point compared to the way he used to be drawn before this arc because he's been eating his feelings, essentially. But I love that 
as he mounts his horse, as he rides, as he goes in this terrible journey, that's not shown as being a hindrance. He is still this mighty warrior. I mean, we're talking to Asgardian health at any size, and I fully approve of that. He's trying to get away from his destiny, but his destiny is that he is a great warrior. Right. And so he escapes the boulders of the living landslide. The choking vines of the forbidden forest. The endless sandstorms of the deadly desert. And he narrates the alliterative hazards, much like we did, to Silverhoof along the way. Very pulpy. I do love that there's just so much, like, old-school Silver Age and Bronze Age stuff in this run. Like, it can be a little cheesy, but as long as it means it hard enough, as long as it's earnest enough in that cheesiness, it totally works. It is sincere. Exactly, and I value sincerity in my fiction above pretty much anything. If you mean it, like, it doesn't have to be perfect, it's gonna be great. Although Simonson's run is pretty much perfect. <laughs> but I love uh, Loki's castle. You know, it's so terrifically over the top. Just the, the long, winding uh, pathway up to the castle. It's so Loki. It's a little bit Dracula's castle. I mean, less Bram Stoker's Dracula and more Castlevania, but I'll totally take it. He makes it to Loki's castle, but suddenly there are trolls. Oh, wait, no, they're fire demons. They capture Balder and bring him to their master. I mean, seeing trolls within Asgard, like, okay, that makes sense. Seeing fire demons, something is clearly weird here, and sure enough, there is a second surprising guest staying in Loki's castle. And it's Malekith the Dark Elf. Remember the phrase, Dark Elf, before, that that figure in space uttered? Yeah, that's this guy. And he's got this very striking character design. His outfit is red and black. The colors reverse from one side to the other, just like his face, which is half dark elf blue and half pure black. Much later in continuity, we'll find out that the face thing is actually a curse from someone Malekith betrayed to mark him forever as a betrayer. And this is the same character who's the villain in the second Thor movie, Thor the Dark World, but he could not be more different. Here he almost looks like a, a court jester, and he does have that sort of maniacal feel to him. In Thor the Dark World, Christopher Eccleston, an actor I normally love, was just sort of a guy with half his face burned, wearing black armor, being evil because he was an evil guy and evil guys like to do evil. Uh, supposedly, Thor the Dark World was going to have more Malekith, more backstory, fleshing him out a little bit more, but the fans wanted to see Loki so much that they cut Malekith's running time and gave it to Loki, which, don't get me wrong, Loki's great in the movies, but I love Malekith, and I love Christopher Eccleston, and I mourn what we have lost. Tom Hiddleston, man. People love him. I mean, they're not wrong. This makes me want to watch both Thor movies again before Ragnarok comes out because I enjoy the movies and I had read a bunch of Thor, but not like this. So I can't tell if I'm going to enjoy it extra much or if it'll frustrate me. I mean, I enjoyed it extra much when I saw it. So nice. I, let's, let's totally make this happen. And yeah, Balder points out that Malekith's master, clearly this figure that Odin opposes, this figure that the letter is referencing the danger of, that master is going to destroy absolutely everything. But Loki doesn't care. He just has Balder gagged. And Malekith says, Is this the best that Odin can do? Send a spineless, overweight flunky to curry the favor of his stepson, when all know that Odin regrets ever having adopted Loki in the first place. So yes, Malekith is manipulating the god of lies. Yeah, Malekith kind of makes me think of Loki, but with no humanity and no insecurities. Malekith is like the logical endpoint of who Loki could be if he lost everything that made him the stepson of Odin, the stepbrother of Thor. 
Yeah, if Loki could get rid of his father and brother issues, which are like giant neon lights to someone like Malekith, you know, he would be a lot less vulnerable. And that's one of the reasons I enjoy Malekith as a villain, because thematically he ties in. Also, very snappy dresser. Also, super evil in a way that I have to kind of respect. Like, he just wants to make things worse. It's Well, he's committed, you know? He's got a goal. I appreciate that. And Malekith is about to kill Balder as a gift to Loki. But Balder escapes, dodging spears, slipping his bonds, and jumping away. Balder begs them not to force him to kill the chasing fire demons. His face is so terrified at the prospect amid a literal sea of armed demons chanting, kill him. Yeah, the way Simonson draws Balder's face, just twisted in rage and grief and fear, it's just so believable. Like, it, it's not a pretty face. I mean, the dude is covered in sweat. He's like, kind of ugly crying, basically, but there's just such intensity to it, the way Simonson portrays him. Something is breaking inside him as he picks up a sword, begging the demons to leave him alone. I beg of you, cease now and prevent this terrible thing from happening. I'll let you live, I swear it. My mission is with Loki. And they draw first blood. Demons, I forswore the sword forever. But billions of innocents will perish if my mission fails. Conscience, I cast thee aside. Death shall be my helpmeet. So here there's a grid of small panels with just a few words and a bunch of sound effects as Baldur's face is spattered in blood as he's slaughtering everybody. Fiends. Shwip. Devils. Slash. You've destroyed me Rip. and everything I hold dear. Slash. Everything! Now die! 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 And just that building intensity as Baldur's humanity is ripped away as everything he wanted to be, everything he wanted to run away from, just comes crashing back into his life as all the progress he has made since seeing those fallen warriors in hell is just torn asunder. Baldur is broken. Who Baldur wanted to be is destroyed. That last bit of his life that he was trying to hang on to is gone, and he strides forth and impales Malekith, who vanishes, leaving only his cloak. So Balder finally passes the letter to Loki, who tosses it aside. You are a fool, Balder, to think a message from my stepfather could possibly be of concern to me. I have already decided to accept Malekith's offer. After all, I have the blood of giants in my veins, as my stepfather never tires of reminding me. But it was so delightful to watch a pacifist slay his thousands that I simply couldn't bring myself to mention it before this. Why, it would have spoiled the fun. And there's a close-up on the eyes of Balder the Brave, and the sheer level of fury in them is impossible to describe. If you can find this comic, just look at it. Simonson's art is a masterpiece here. He looks like he's literally going to explode. Like, his blood vessels are going to explode and blood's going to go everywhere. Oh, seriously. And Balder swings his sword. We see it on the left of Loki's off-panel neck in one panel, then on the right of it in the next panel as Schlick! follows the motion line of the sword, followed by thud. And Balder, screaming in rage and pain, rides hard from Loki's castle. He's going to lose himself in Nornheim's deserts and die, ending his agony. So, I gotta kind of wonder, did Odin know that it was going to go this badly? I mean, he must have. I mean, Odin knows Loki so well. He knows that Loki, you know, despises Balder. In a way, it's like he's giving Loki a present, you know, an opportunity to torture Balder once again. 
And in fact, this is kind of a present to Loki because a bit later, Loki's headless body bends over, picks his head up off the ground, and puts it back on his neck. An excellent jest. Well worth the price of a stiff neck for a day or so. Loki, you son of a bitch. He is such a dick. This, for me, is my definitive Loki moment. This is Loki being willing to be literally beheaded just so he can ruin Baldur the Brave's day, week, month, and year. An eye for an eye blinds the world, Loki. (sighs) One of these days he'll learn. I mean, there was that Journey into Mystery run by Kieran Gillen. You know, I feel like Loki learned a lot there. And then there was Loki Agent of Asgard, and there was Young Avengers. Oh, there's been some good Loki stuff in the last decade or so. Of course. Loki, Loki, Loki. What about Malekith? Malekith's been around a lot, too. He's been in Jason Aaron's run, for instance. Uh-huh. I see. No spoilers. <laughs> Back on Midgard, there is more sexy machinations afoot. Because Lorelai, as Melody, is massaging Thor as Sigurd. Now, he's clueless that she is, in fact, a goddess. She knows exactly who he is. And she's about to give him the golden mead, but he falls asleep. I kind of love this. Yeah, she's annoyed, but then also kind of charmed. And she leaves a note. Sigurd, you're forgiven, but only if you let me fix dinner for you Saturday. I'll be in touch. Heart, heart. Melody. This would be kind of adorable if it also weren't evil. It's true, because she basically says, well, I'll forgive him because I fell asleep on him. Like, they're kind of having these meet-cutes. Exactly. And as Simonson loves to do, this is going to take us into a major plot point coming up. Between this and Malekith, we have so much waiting for you next episode. Woohoo! But before we go, we have Recognitions of Merit! And let's start with Hell's Haberdashery. What do you think, Elizabeth? Who has the greatest Asgardian headgear in these four issues? It is not even a contest. It is Carnilla, the Queen of the Norns, who has her elaborate, ever-changing headdresses in every issue. Oh, man, they're like these big sort of spike horn wing plates on the front of her head with these medallions and coins hanging and orbs of power. Carnilla reminds me so much of uh, Princess Ardala from Buck Rogers, the 1980s TV show. And yes, she knows her sense of style. It is elaborate headdresses and a lot of purple, and she looks awesome. Seriously, and I love that Carnilla changes her hat like every time we see her. Yeah, like she must have a huge closet just for headdresses. I feel like when you rule an entire sub-realm that you've managed to keep independent from Odin, you know, you can make this happen. You can't allow people to see you in a headdress more than once. I mean, you'll totally lose your respect. She's trying to win the heart of Baldur the Brave. That's already hard mode because he's a good guy and she's a bad lady. So, you know, she can't afford a single headgear-based misstep. Agreed. Well, next we have the Crack-A-Doom Award. What do you think, Miles? Oh, there are so many good sound effects in these issues. Now, I narrowed it down to two, so I think I'm going to have to give the runner-up award to a sound effect in Thor number 342, which is... As Thor drills through the rock to take Aleph out of the Labyrinth of Terror. But I think I may like that in part just because it's funny. So let's go ahead and do something that's purely badass, like this sound effect from Thor number 341, which is a... inside Fafnir's fire breath as he breathes it during battle, and the sound effect, the words, they expand within the blast itself, heading to the foreground of the panel. I really love, I mean, the sound effects are great in this entire run, every single issue, but the ones that interact with the panel structure or the content of the panels, those are often my favorites. Yeah, the ones that are clearly designed to interact with the page itself are the best. Exactly. 
All right, Elizabeth, I believe it's your turn for this arc's most metal moment. So my runner-up is 344, where Balder kills everything. I mean, this was a tough one, I have to say. But my most metal moment was from issue 343 with Thor and Aelith flying into battle with Fafnir. Because in addition to fighting Thor, fighting with Thor, meeting Odin and dying a hero's death, I'm sure he'd really appreciate getting the most metal moment from us. Exactly. He can wear that little badge on his awesome armor while in Valhalla feasting with the other Einherjar. But God, Aleph, everything about him is just, like, he's, he's badass, yes, but my heart just goes out to him. He's been through some hard stuff and he finally gets a just reward at the end of his life. Do we ever see him again? Uh, we see him as one of the Einherjar, yes. Ooh. When they finally go into battle, a little bit of a spoiler there. Okay. There's Aleph the Dragon Slayer right with them being awesome. Aww, single tear. Right? So we finally have a fourth category. Whatsoever holds this hammer. And this is an award we're going to grant to the worthiest thing that is not a character in every arc. We realize this is a strange category, but calling it whatsoever holds this hammer makes me laugh, so we're just going to go with it. And in this case, I think our worthiest object has to be Sigurd Jarlson's shield-supplied fake glasses. Such deceptive power within such simplicity. Truly the most potent magic of all is the expectations of others. This is a clear relative to Odin's uh, old man hat of disguise. Yeah, or uh, Wolverine as Patch's pantyhose that go over his eyes. The best. I mean, you know, these things work in the Marvel and apparently DC universes. It's true. It's just like movie stars when they put on their sunglasses. And so that is what we have for you this time. Next time, a father's legacy is passed on, and nothing is what it seems. Thor's questionable taste in women. The ancient kingdoms of the Fae. Malekith the Accursed. This has been, and shall ever be, The Lightning and the Storm! The Lightning and the Storm is produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. In Portland, Oregon, of Midgard, Realm of Mortals. Check us out at thelightningandthestorm.com. And if you'd like to help support our ad-free show and get some cool stuff, click the donate link while you're there. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. And rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play so more people can find us. We'll be back next week. Until then... Fight on, brave warriors, for valor, for glory, for Asgard! And just the tip went into the hide, but that's enough for Thor. Maybe we should say just the spear point. I was just going to say as soon as I said that, I was like, (laughs) 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 just the tip!